0: Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if... Because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord.
1: I wonder when the last time was when you felt misunderstood. Maybe it was more than a misunderstanding. Maybe you faced opposition. Maybe you found out that they were talking behind your back. I wonder when the last time was you were criticized unfairly or maybe you were excluded. These things come up all the time, don't they? Uh, Family gatherings, family holidays, dysfunctional workplaces, even the church. They cause us to do... Primarily one of two things. They cause us to either withdraw uh, and isolate or they cause us to attack and go on the offensive. I've recently been reading a book uh, by the well-known therapist now, uh, Lori Gottlieb. Uh, Her book is kind of on like the top seller list right now. She, She talks about a common theme that comes up in her therapy. It's the theme of exclusion. The fear that we'll be left out, excluded, ignored, shunned and end up unloved and alone. That's real stuff, right? You feel that. Well, if you're, able, if you're able to tap into that feeling, maybe you've experienced that before when you were misunderstood, excluded, slandered, unfairly criticized of being excluded and marginalized, then you'll begin to understand, you'll begin to experience what these first century followers of Jesus were facing what they must have felt like when they received uh, this small letter in the New Testament called 1 Peter, written by one of Jesus' apostles. See, Peter is writing, he's writing to an audience who is in the midst of real despair. Individually and as a community, as a faith community, they were going through something that was unbearably hard. Peter calls it a fiery ordeal or a fiery trial. They were being alienated. They were being abused. Uh, They were being publicly pilloried. They were excluded. In fact, Peter calls them in the letter, he calls them exiles. Uh, That's the identity that he gives them. And in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of that uh, unbearably hard place, he calls them strangers and he calls them to strange things. Things that are so radically countercultural, so radically out of our normal experience, that what it did was end up changing the course of civilization as we know it. So, what does Christianity have to say to people going through the impossible? I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if that's how you're feeling. If it is, then what Peter had to say nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, It's good news because it's just as relevant to you and to me this morning in 2019 in Orange County. Uh, And it's just as relevant because the God that Peter followed, the God that he worshiped, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So today I want to consider just two things, two parts out of this short passage. First, I want to look at the strange command. And then second, I want to look at the strange example uh, in 1520, a, German, a, for, a former German monk by the name of Martin Luther uh, wrote a little treatise. He wrote a little essay, and that essay was called On the Freedom of a Christian. And as Martin Luther was gra- grappling with what, what does the call of Jesus mean for my life, he, came, he saw in the New Testament as he was reading the Bible he saw this sort of paradox that existed in the Bible, uh, the paradox of Christian living, and he described it this way. Uh, He said that a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. And the very next sentence, he said, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, one of the paradoxes of following Jesus. And if you don't believe me, it's right in 16, verse 16. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, then you are perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. And at the exact same time, You are a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's what I want to explore this morning in this strange command. The command is in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and the gentle ones, but also to the cruel. And Peter gives a qualification to this command you uh, you've, you've, you've got to do this not only to the ones who are nice, but you have to endure suffering and in the process of do, enduring suffering, do good. And he's not just speaking to uh, what our translation says as a household slave. He's speaking to the entire Christian community here. He's just he's just talking particularly to the unique situation of slaves. What do I mean? He talks in verse 21, about, for you for you were called to this. That language of being called is language that Peter has used elsewhere in the letter and will use later on, as we'll see, to describe everyone, every follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, this is your call to endure suffering, uh, to endure unjust suffering. It's not just for people of a particular social class in the first century. It's to all followers of Jesus. And there's a couple of things about this command that I want you to notice. First, it's an unparalleled command. Uh, it's an unparalleled com- command. And if you're familiar, if if you spend your time reading ancient Greek, uh, Greco-Roman household codes, which I'm sure many of you spend your time doing, um, you would know that. The the mere address in verse 18 from Peter to the slaves, just the mere fact that he is addressing slaves was unparalleled in Greco-Roman culture. See, a lot of people come to passages like this and they think, uh, uh, what is the Bible all about? What does the Bible have to say about slavery? What is Peter up to? The apostle Peter and this unique movement called Christianity were were we're not giving the last word here on the issue of slavery, on the injustice that's called slavery. Uh, they were neither trying to uphold the status quo in the Roman Empire, but neither were they trying to create social upheaval in their communities and neighborhoods. And yet, uh, and yet, Peter gives some profound, profound insights that ended up unraveling and destroying the institution of slavery in in the world as we know it. First, Peter addresses slaves. That was unparalleled in his culture. He addresses slaves as free, moral persons. See, the ancient codes of the Greeks never directly addressed slaves. The philosopher Aristotle believed that slaves were incapable of rational thought In regards to social class, slaves were non-persons. They were non-entities. Not so in the New Testament. They're addressed as people with dignity, with worth, with value. Peter also gives slaves the moral category of justice. The way that they are treated, he gives them a category of justice, a moral category. For most, probably most thinkers in his culture... The idea that injustice could be done to a slave was a contradiction. It didn't exist because slaves were non-persons. Also, Peter subtly, very subtly, rejects the cultural expectation in his time that slaves, and also wives, as we might find out next week, would worship their master's god. See, in the ancient world, economic stability was deeply, deeply intertwined with religious devotion. So a slave would have been expected to serve his master's God, but Peter rejects all this. He upholds the value that uh, you and I as 21st century Americans call religious freedom. And as we'll see in a few moments, Peter draws a comparison between the situation of a slave-enduring unjust treatment and the God of the universe— who entered into the lowest and harshest of circumstances, suffering cruel injustice and unfairness in order to redeem our world. So it's an unparalleled command, but it's also, it's a commendable command. Uh, you see that in verse 19 and, 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 and 20. When, when Peter says this, he says, For it brings favor, if you obey this command, this, it brings favor. He says that twice he says it once in verse nineteen and then once again at the end of verse 20 that this and the language there is it's commendable it's pleasing uh, it's something that's that's gracious in the sight of god it's a it's a commendable command it's commendable because two reasons it one glorifies God and it's good for our neighbor that comes up if you if you refer back if you have your bibles if you refer back to verses 11 and 12 of chapter chapter 2. This is what Peter writes. This is the context of this passage. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So Peter is saying... Why would, you, why would you obey this command? Because it's commendable, it's pleasing, and because it glorifies God and is good for your community. How is that so? Obedience to this command glorifies God because, first, it demonstrates an awareness, a mindfulness, what Peter calls a consciousness of God. You see that right in verse 19. For if it brings favor, if... Because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Now, I don't know about you, but isn't this one, isn't this one of the things about suffering that makes uh, that is that that what Peter is saying is so counterintuitive? It's so unlike our experience. Uh, f- suffering, at least for me, I don't know what it's like for you, but suffering for me. Uh, puts me on a one-track mind where all I am thinking about is my problem. All I am thinking about is what I'm going through. My mind is filled with the, the unjust treatment that I'm enduring, the things that are closing in on my life. Does that sound familiar? Our suffering, our problems consume our thinking and our feeling. It consumes our mind. We can hardly experience or see anything else we're fixated on how to get free, on how to get out. But Peter is calling us to be mindful and conscious of God, that in all of our suffering, that in all of our problems, there is a sovereign, omnipotent, wise, compassionate, fatherly, gentle God of the universe who is sovereign not only the of the good that you experience, but also the unjust suffering that you may be going through. That brings glory to God. When our minds are filled not with our problem and our suffering, but filled with the reality that there is a personal triune God who is maker of the heavens and the earth. Secondly, it brings glory to God because it demonstrates a reliance on God's resources and not our own. Think about what's happening to these first century Christians. They're being forced out of their homes. They're losing social standing in the community. They're being ostracized from the normal systems of commerce. And what is God asking them to do? He's saying, endure it, bear it, glorify me in it. Lean into my resources When you're thrown out of your house, know that I have drawn you into my household. When you suffer dishonor, know that I have honored you with a place in my kingdom. When your reputation, when your life itself is put in jeopardy, know that I have secured your life forever. Peter is saying, lean into the resources of your maker, of your heavenly father. Trust him in the process. That's how you glorify God in your suffering. How is this good for our neighbor? How is this a pleasing or commendable command that we could commend to our culture? Well, think about our culture for a moment. Our culture is a culture that values self assertion, not self denial of the kind that Peter is calling us to. Our culture values my freedom. My rights, my needs, those are the most important things. Let me suggest to you that cultures of self-assertion actually produce vengeance, but the kind of culture that Peter is calling Christians to emulate produces forgiveness. Let me give you an example. You know, it's fascinating to me and and scary uh, that in the first century, the great fear was that if you said the wrong things or you did the wrong things, you would end up in the Colosseum and you would be eaten by lions. In 2019, there, we've taken down, uh, the Colosseums are, 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 are no longer in use, um, but there are still lions. There are still forms of Colosseums. It's called social media. Uh, as one writer puts it, social media offers new ways to be the same old humans by virally exposing what has always been in our hearts, both good and good and bad. I'm talking about what some have called the call-out culture of our current moment in society. Um, a while back, several months ago, there was an, uh, an episode on NPR's podcast, Invisibilia, and uh, this, this particular episode was about a young hardcore punk rocker named Emily. She was part of the punk rock scene, and as the story goes, Emily and her best friend are on their way to Florida, uh, to perform a gig, when as they're in route, they get a call from the venue, and they've been canceled. Uh, their show, their performance, has been canceled. And as it turns out, what had happened was a woman had gone public and accused one of, uh, and accused Emily's best friend of sending her unwanted sexually graphic texts. Uh, and the guys, uh, the, her, her her best friend, his bandmates dismissed the allegations. But when Emily got home. She wrote a lengthy Facebook post denouncing him as an abuser. She said at one point, I disown everything he has done. I do not think it's okay. I believe women. Well, the post worked. And Emily eventually heard that uh, he had been fired. He had left his job. He had left the city where he lived. And he wasn't, he wasn't doing particularly well, as you can imagine. Uh, the two of them actually never spoke again. But several years later, this, this same woman, young woman, Emily, she got called out. Uh, and the, the, the context was apparently a decade earlier, she had participated in some cyberbullying of a young female in high school. The post that denounced Emily went viral, and she became the object of people's scorn. She was kicked out of the punk rock scene. She felt like she couldn't leave her own house. She became traumatized and isolated. In the podcast, the guy who called out Emily, uh, he went by the name of Herbert, he told the interviewer that calling her out gave him a rush of pleasure. He was asked at one point if he cared about the pain that Emily endured, and he said, no, I don't care. I don't care because it's obviously something she deserves, and it's something that's been coming. I literally do not care about what happens to her after the situation. I don't care if she's dead, alive, whatever. And then when the interviewer, Hannah Rosen, showed skepticism, he revealed, the interviewer revealed, uh, uh, or this, uh, about this young man, Herbert, that he too was a victim. His father had beat him throughout his childhood. Do you see the brutality of our current cultural moment? Yes, we've progressed past feeding people to lions, but is what we're doing really all that different? We've torn down the colosseums and replaced it with public shaming, Twitter denunciations and online condemnation. Is it any wonder is it any wonder why our culture is more and more characterized by this binary tribalism of us versus them, victim versus the oppressor? And in all of it, in all of it is this zealous game of moral one-upmanship in which we are trying to show the world and ourselves, how morally superior we actually are? And then, once we've handed over the power to destroy other people, are we really convinced that society is better off? I would argue it's not. This is a commendable command. Can you imagine for a moment Peter writing this command in 2019? Calling people to endure unjust suffering... Not to write a viral post, not to form a protest, but to endure it silently as you are mindful of God. So let me suggest also that this is an impossible command. What Peter is asking of you and me this morning is impossible. How do I know that? Because later on in the passage, he says, you all were like sheep going astray. This is a command that you and I cannot follow. We cannot fulfill. We cannot accomplish. I love the old hymn. It puts it this way. The old hymn, how firm a foundation. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. That's what Peter's asking you to do. When when you are going through the fiery ordeal and following in the steps of Jesus... When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. It's not your strength. It's not, it doesn't come from your supply. It doesn't come from your resources. Following Jesus only comes by his grace and his power working in you and through you. God alone commands and God alone fulfills it. Praise God. That's the strange command. I want to show you the strange example. The strange example. It's in verse 21. For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The language that Peter's using there, uh, this language of example, it's the language that um, if you have young kids, my, my, my kids are obsessed with drawing and coloring right now. And the way that they're doing that... Um, uh, my son will take one of his plastic uh, uh, figures, like a rhino or an elephant, and he'll put it on a piece of paper and then begin to trace around it. It doesn't work very good. Um, but he has a model. He has a model, and he's tracing around it. That's what Peter, that's the language that Peter's using here, that Jesus is, he's, he's, he's the image, and we're, we're tracing, we're following the lines, we're tracing the lines. That's what Peter is calling, he's saying, you have a model, you have an example, there's a trail to follow. There's a, a Jesus who has blazed a trail and you're walking in his steps. Ironically, ironically and oddly, this is the disciple Peter that if you know the New Testament, he was the one most opposed to suffering. When Jesus said, I, I have come and I'm going to be, I'm, 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 there's a time where I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be given over to uh, to uh, those who are going to mock me and revile me and spit on me, and then they're going to crucify me and kill me. And Peter said, no, this is, this is not going to happen. So what's changed? What's changed for Peter? Because as most scholars will tell you, he makes suffering the very heartbeat of his picture of Jesus. Jesus. At the very center of Peter's understanding of Jesus is unjust suffering. How, how in the world did that happen? Well, look at, look at the example that, that, that Peter gives us of Jesus. First, he says in verse 22, he did not commit any sin. This is the doctrine of Jesus' impeccability. You can take that one home today and impress your parents. Jesus, The doctrine of Jesus' impeccability It's not that Jesus was just a good guy, a moral guy, a nice guy. It was that Jesus was flawless. He was perfect. He was the only one in the history of the human race of whom it could be said he endured unjust suffering. He committed no sin. Neither did he retaliate or take revenge. Verse 23. Now think for a moment. Think for one moment about being robbed of happiness, of opportunity, of your reputation, of your freedom. How would you respond? One way is to do the exact opposite of what Jesus did. You can make the oppressors, you can make the abusers, the perpetrators, suffer for your suffering. That can be done actively by talking behind their back or viciously attacking them or it can be done passively by fantasizing harm against them, ignoring them, shunning them. And if they suffer, then you begin to feel, don't you, some sort of consolation, some sort of satisfaction. The problem with that um, is, as Martin Luther King Jr. points out in one of his most well-known sermons, is that that hate... That hatred becomes just as injurious to you, the victim of the unjust suffering. He says, like an untreated cancer, it begins to eat away at you, destroying your values, making you hard and cold, self-pitting and self-absorbed. And so what happens? Your retaliation, your payback, actually doesn't accomplish anything good either for you or for the person who is guilty of the harm in the first place. And so what happens? A cycle of retaliation and revenge continues to spiral and spiral and spiral. So Jesus gives us an example of non-retaliatory, morally perfect goodness. But let me suggest that if that's all there is, if Jesus is just an example, if he's only someone you're supposed to follow in the footsteps of, because he demonstrated this non-retaliatory way of dealing with suffering, then he is not only naive, but his example is worthless to you. It's worthless to you. Because to throw away your life for no greater purpose, just to be a moral example, accomplishes nothing. See, for Jesus' example to mean anything at all, for it to be any use to you and me today in 2019, Jesus must be more than an example. And that's where I think many of us uh, leave Christianity off. We, we say, we're, we're, we're okay with following Jesus as a moral example. We're okay with holding him up with some of the great uh, uh, culture makers of history but that's not what Peter allows us to do. See what Peter says in verse 23. He says that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The language there is actually a little bit even more, uh, it's not as specific as some of our translations say. It's actually Jesus entrusted to the one who judges justly. Well, what did he entrust? A lot of translators put in the word himself, but that word is not there jesus entrusted what did he entrust he entrusted everything he entrusted his life he entrusted his reputation he entrusted his freedom he entrusted his dignity his worth his rights into the one of into the hands of the one who judges justly and friends what happened he was condemned he was killed. He was crucified on a tree like a, like a criminal, worse than a criminal. He was crucified like a non-person, a punishment reserved for slaves and for the dregs of society. Why? Peter tells us it's because he was in that moment absorbing the damage and the debt of our sin. And by his wounds, he accomplishes our healing. See what Peter is saying? The purpose was redemptive all along. At the cross, you get the justice that your soul demands. And at the exact same time, you get the forgiveness that you desperately need. Let me show you. Some of you may have seen the the clips from this. Uh, It went viral several weeks ago. Uh, this case about the police officer Amber Amber Geiger, who was uh, um, was convicted and is has now been sentenced to ten years in prison in Texas uh, for killing a young black man by the name of Botham Jean. Um, and if you saw some, uh, maybe some of you saw these clips. Um, at one point after the trial, uh, her uh, the, the the victim Botham Jean's brother uh, Brant asked if he could give a hug, if he could, for, if he, if he could forgive Amber Geiger, and the judge, the judge allowed it. It was extraordinary. Videos of this were all over the internet. Um, but what was perhaps more remarkable is at one point, the judge who was officiating the trial, who, who sentenced Amber to 10 years in prison, almost never happens in Texas, a police officer sentenced to prison, At one point, the judge, Tammy Kemp, left the bench and proceeded to give Amber a hug and tell her that God forgives her. And then she left the chambers and went and got her own Bible and brought it back and gave it to Amber and read with her John 3.16. Now, there were... This was going all over the internet, and if you watch the video clips, it's, it's, it's a tearjerker. You're just moved in your heart, and there was yet and, and yet, at the exact same time, there were some in the media who wanted to vilify her, to explain away this act of grace on behalf of the judge, and that is always the heart's response to an extravagant, costly grace to someone who's undeserving and worthless. See, this, is, this went viral. A video like this goes viral because we're dying for it. Our politics are dying for it. Our communities are dying for it. We are dying for it. But friends, what if Tammy, what if the judge had got down off her bench, went and gave Amber a hug, gave her a Bible, and then proceeded to say, shackle me. I will endure the sentence. Friends, then you have a pic. Then you're beginning to see for a moment what Jesus endured. Jesus, the God of the universe, who took on my sentence, my shame, my guilt. Don't you see? The shepherd has now become the sheep. He has become the lamb for slaughter. He has become the scapegoat. He is the overseer who has become the suffering slave. He's the Lord who became the servant. Do you hear him today? Do you hear him today? This is what he says to you. He says, I know all of your suffering and pain, child. I know all of your darkness. I know all of your damage. I know all of your secret sins. I know all of the sins that you hate and you can't stop doing. I know all of the sins that you love and you won't stop doing. And I know that it's killing you and those around you. He says, Take heart, child. I have overcome, I have paid the cost, I have satisfied the debt. I have overcome it all, the darkness, the damage, the sins. I have overcome death itself. Friends, do you hear that? Christ has overcome it all. You are free, Lord of all, subject to none. Go in that freedom. This is our Jesus. Isn't he something? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what tremendous freedom the gospel brings that we don't have to be enslaved and entrapped by our own circumstances, but you have given us an identity and a meaning and a purpose that is kept in heaven for us, that on the last day we will see you face to face and we will receive honor and praise and glory because we are clothed in Jesus' perfection, because he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, but he bore our sins on his own body on the tree, and he healed all of our wounds. Thank you, God, for sending us a Savior like this, and it's in his precious name that we pray.